Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is a serial entrepreneur, financier, a former professional football player. He broke into the cannabis industry back in 2015 as a consultant and then began a national CBD company in 2018. The following year, he founded Blackmar Farms, which today is present in three states and growing. After 10 years of professional football, he also started coffee and cigar companies, restaurants, tech firms, has worked in construction management and nonprofits. So Ruben Lindo, thanks so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today, sir. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really doing great. Look, why don't you do us a favor and back up a little bit. Tell me where you went to college, where you grew up, you know, um, where'd you get your start? So I uh, I grew up in a, in a small town in upstate New York, Saugerties, New York. Uh, it's about 100 miles outside of New York City. My mother uh, was looking for a place to raise a family and, and get us out of harm's way. So we came up here and uh, we were probably one of the first black families in this all white community. It was, you know, beautiful time back then though, I'll be honest with you. And then um, I went on to uh, University of Buffalo. I played football at the University of Buffalo. Uh, I attended um, Millard Fillmore Medical College while at the University of Buffalo and got a advanced degree in biology and medical biology. Um, after I left there and had my run in playing professional sports after my first injury, um, I went and got my MBA at NYU Stern. And the rest is history. You said my bio. Lovely. Thank you. No, you know, let's back up a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your professional football career. Where'd you play? Who'd you play with? What did you so I, I, I was what they call, as you said, serial entrepreneur. I was a serial tryout guy. Um, I came in the league with Denver in 95 and was cut, went on to uh, play in Canada for a year, came back from Canada uh, to the Jets in 97, was with the Jets in 97, got cut, went down to Jacksonville, got cut, um, and then really just started seeing the writing on the wall and you know bounced around, played arena football, went back to Canada, and then made my last run at the NFL in 2005 with the Miami Dolphins. And you got injured a couple of times along the way? I had um, a knee surgery and shoulder surgery. Oh, wow, wow. And I'm sure back then they put you on the standard level of care, right? Yeah. You know, to be oh. honest with you, be honest with you, Montel, I, I didn't, um, I never used opioids. I've never used an opioid uh, because my father was a heroin addict, right? And that's a little bit of, of, of the story about me. Um, I was scared to death of it. Right. And growing up as a child in the 80s with family in the South Bronx, drugs were scary. Right. It was like and, and all drugs were scary to me, you know, watching family members uh, have crack cocaine addiction issues. Like I said, my father and a, a heroin addiction. I just didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and I believe that that's probably what enabled me to continue um, in my athletic career, because Lo and behold, again, also having a medical background before I even got to, to playing pro sports, I had an understanding of the detrimental side of using standard medicine. Um, although I didn't use plant-based medicine, I just was terrified to use opioids. Um, I never did. And, and when, when did you, did you get, find a personal connection with cannabis? So in, um, I've always had a connection with it, uh, to be honest with you. 
Um, I tell people I was an original legacy guy, even playing sports. You know, people think, oh, you were a professional athlete. You made millions of dollars. No, no, no. Um, I still had to supplement my income. So I always was around and involved with the plant, either bringing products in, um, you know, shipping weed from Arizona or California to New York uh, for distribution or um, overseeing grow facilities, buddies that had grow facilities, because it was a way for us to make money. And especially in the black community, it, it became a little bit of subculture, but it was really a, a way for us to supplement our income, you know, and growing up, it's, it's always been medicine. I, I have aunts and uncles that would smoke reefer, right? They called it reefer back then. And they, they, they'd, they'd have, you know, a joint and it always helped with their nerves. I have um, two uncles that were in Vietnam and I remember as a kid, they'd kick us out and then they'd presumably smoke a joint and then they had enough patience to deal with the kids for the rest of the day. Right. And um, so it's always been around me um, as a consumer, believe it or not, in 2016, I, I consumed my first uh, joint. Uh, I was with Mike Tyson actually at the time, Mike and I grew up uh, very close to one another. We're about uh, 10 minutes apart. And uh, I, I was telling him how I was having issues with, um, post-concussion syndrome. And, you know, I was w battling CTE and he introduced me to, um, CBD and then we kind of talked about it. And then, you know, he introduced me to, to cannabis and, um, I can, uh, you know, I consumed, but I, I don't consume to get high. I really don't. I, I really medicate myself with it. Um, and I use probably every couple weeks and it keeps me even keeled. Um, but I also consume an awful lot of CBD. I'm, I'm a big CBD consumer. Yeah, I'm a big CBD consumer also. But now you were in the business during your football career, but when did you decide to make cannabis your, you know, you're again, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've got all kinds of businesses going on. When did you decide that maybe cannabis might be one of those things that I want to focus on? So in, 20, in 2013, I was released from prison. I, I went to prison for, for 18 months. And when I came home from prison, I couldn't find a job in traditional markets. Even having an MBA, medical background, um, people just didn't really want to hire a convicted felon. I met these two gentlemen at a cigar lounge, um, and I was actually talking to uh, then Pro Football Hall, uh, Leonard Marshall. Len and I were on the phone, and he was telling me about this medical cannabis company that he was an investor in. I hung up the phone with him. And these two other guys started talking to me about uh, cannabis and infrastructure and medicine. And um, they asked me if I would write a business plan for them and a pitch deck. So I did. Um, at first, I was a little nervous because I was like, I, I can't go back to prison for this. Right. Like, I just can't get caught up. And I didn't know if it was a kind of a setup until, to be honest with you. Um, and that, a light went off in that moment. And. Um, I realized that there was a real need in this industry for adults in the room, some business acumen, um, some folks that were going to look at this thing from both sides of the fence, as we say. So from the legacy and street side, but also bring that business school acumen to it. Um, and, and I was really successful working for these guys out of Canada. That's when I knew in, in 2015, I, I knew beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that I had found probably the most rewarding career 
that I could have ever found. It, it, it allowed me to use my science background and business and marry the two. Um, at the time, my wife and I were really struggling and it, it opened up a door for us to have financial um, viability, right? I, I can't say that we got rich, but we definitely were able to su- survive and then move on to, to thriving in, in society. And um, I just didn't stop there. I, I asked a ton of questions. I was in boardrooms with the biggest in the industry, from the canopy grows to the Tilray executives, um, hydropothecary. I, you know, I, I was in with all of them. Uh, the company that I was consulting for asked me to be their CEO. And I said, oh, I can't be your CEO. I'm a convicted felon. They said, we're a privately held company. We know all about your conviction and we want to make that part of our story. Um, I became their CEO, led them on a uh, just about a $30 million cap raise and started seeing really the the dark side of cannabis, right? Which is the capitalist side where people were just in this to make money. And I really wanted to be in it to heal people and help people. So at that point, I made the decision to pivot from plant touching THC business into CBD. And I had a little bit of a vision because I knew that the farm bill was coming and I knew that the industry was going to really shift. So we really focused myself and, and two other former professional athletes focused on putting together a brand that talked to the issues that we had. And one of the big issues that we had was anxiety. The other was pain. So what better remedy for, for, for anxiety and pain than CBD? But right at that same moment, Montel, my daughter in Canada was stricken with a, a rare blood disorder called aplastic anemia, severe aplastic anemia, where her body stopped producing red blood cells. She was in treatment and her hair started falling out. And she was in a very aggressive treatment that was non-therapeutic. Um, it was all plant-based and animal um, genetics. And it's, it's, it's really what kind of saved her life. But me being in cannabis, I went right away and, and found folks to work with to create a shampoo for my daughter. And we created, a, we created what I thought was a shampoo. It really turned out to be body butter. Because what did I know about you know cosmetics? And then I partnered with a, a cosmetics team. And I just became a geek in the industry. I spent two years in a lab in San Diego, flying back and forth from New York to San Diego or Toronto to, to San Diego, and just put together um, what I considered the best 100 products that you could develop from skincare to hair care. And then we put a little twist on it. And we really started talking to the black community and black consumer Again, not to be segregation, not to be a segregationist, but really because that's a part of our community, the black community. We don't know about a lot of these things, the scientific part of it, right? We know the benefits, we know the money side of it, but when you start talking about CBD and and skincare and what it does and antioxidants and how it makes your skin radiant and can increase hair follicle growth, you know these things were great. And, and the science of it was awesome. And I just went crazy, to be honest with you, and stayed in the lab and tried to create products that helped people. And we said from from seven to 70, we wanted to help people. And, you know, lo and behold, Montel, my mom was diagnosed with uh, lung cancer, right around this, you know, uh, two years after my daughter goes into full remission. And then 
at that point I said, I know a little bit about THC and cancer. We flew my mom home from Florida and she was um, probably 90 pounds. And I picked her up from the airport and we made plans for a funeral. And on the way to the meet with the funeral director, I said to my sister and stepfather, I need to change her diet and we're going to put her on um, Rick Simpson's oil. And uh, I found a buddy who was, who's creating Rick Simpson's oil in California. And, you know, I did the unthinkable and spent thousands and thousands of dollars and gave my mom three years additional on her life. And I know that if she just stayed with the Rick Simpson's oil and kept her diet the way that we had it, she would have, she'd still be alive. I think um, once she made the decision to go to chemo, she gave up. Right. And that's the light, that's the story in our industry. So that's the full backup story, Montel, of me and how I fell in love with this industry. And um, it's been something that's been near and dear to our heart in this office is, um, you know, we can chase fame and riches. Um, but at the end of the day, that's all fleeting. I want to be known for um, my legacy, for for building up community, and 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 lifting people up, and 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 teaching them about this. Well, tell me a little bit about your craft cannabis company, Blackmore Farms. So, Blackmore Farms is a craft cultivation company. Um, for the last two and a half years, we focused on cultivation, and we did product development for other brands um, under NDA. Can't disclose those. But we worked with some of the more popular brands and we grew high quality craft cannabis in the potency range of, you know, somewhere in 26 to 32 percent THC. Right. We really focused on the power side of the plant. And then one day I sat down and started talking to my growers and said, you know, let's kind of change the narrative. Right. Let's change. Let's get away from creating what we consider recreational gas and start creating products that speak to different ailments and let's look at the different terpene profiles and let's look at different uh, ratios and, and how do we do this? So we started going out and creating um, genetics and we started doing tissue culture really early on. Um, and we started pheno hunting and finding plants that we think were the traditional medicine side of this and, and focused on it. Um, you know, there's not a lot of money in science and research in, in this industry. So we still focus on putting out a recreational product. But this year we made a pivot and I made a decision after talking to some folks in California and, you know, after I left MJ BizCon, said, I'm not going to buy another cultivation facility. I'm not going to put any more money into it. There are guys out here that are doing it. Um, all they need is good SOPs and genetics and we're going to become a brand um, and we're going to put out seven SKUs and we're going to focus on putting seven SKUs in emerging economies. And then in, in flooded economies, we're going to pick the lost leaders and we're going to speak to a demographic that no one speaks to. And that's the legacy to legal side, right? So we can talk about that because we were a legacy brand. Blackmar Farms was, was known from coast to coast for, for, for our products and our flour um, before we got our license in, in Michigan. And once we got licensed in Michigan, um, the, the emphasis and I think the ethos of our company changed. 
So this year I sat down and said, look, I'm, I'm really done chasing capital. I'm done trying to raise a ton of capital. Um, we're going to circle the wagons. We created a campaign um, and it's um, elevate the culture and uplift communities. Um, we created a subculture uh, within that. And we have a campaign right now going on that's buy weed from brothers like you used to. Right? And it's really just to kind of play on the fact that there aren't a lot of legacy to legal brands that can go and, 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 and really have a multi-state presence. Right. And that's, that's what we're doing. Um, matter of fact, our program is very unique because out of every product skew we sell, um, we try and do either one or $2 goes directly back into that community where that dispensary is. Um, now one or $2 doesn't sound like a lot, but when you get into volume sales and, and the other thing too, Montel, let me back up. We created these products so that they stay middle of the road. We want everyone to be able to afford them. We want people to come in and have access to clean quality genetics and clean quality products. Um, we got away from the sugar-based and went to pectin-based gummies. Uh, we got away from uh, ethanol and, and, and using uh, chemicals in our, in our solvents to, to, to chemical and solventless uh, extracts. So we're really focusing on the clean side. And then I took it a step further and said, even if we lose money, we're going to be a uh, sustainable company. So everything that we do comes in glass or renewable plastics. We don't use Mylar bags. Um, even everything all the way down to our tops are biodegradable hemp lids. So we really have focused on living and being true to um, what I always say is we can't have, if we're not good to the planet, we would never have the plant. And, and that's just how I feel about it. Even if, even if I lose margin and profit, I'd rather lose profit and, and know that we're doing good than rake in profit and continue to damage the world. You're starting to produce, or you've been producing an annual networking gala in New York. Tell me a little bit about the event and the mission behind it. So the idea initially was we started this event in California, and it used to be called In the Clouds. And we had people like Matt Barnes and um, uh, Dwayne Martin and you know a lot of celebrities uh, host them. And then we realized that all those were, were just really get together, hang out, um, the BS and party crowd. Um, when we came back to New York, the first thing that I realized was people aren't getting the information. They're getting a lot of conjecture and a, a, a lot of, you know, what I call um, false information in the industry from a lot of people who were just misleading, right? And being have been in the industry as long as I have, we decided to create uh, Urban Couture uh, Luxury Cannabis Networking Dinner. So what we do is we bring you in to a venue. Uh, the past two years, we were in a, a converted barn. It was lovely. Um, you come to the event. The first thing I do is I give you a pen and a notebook. That's what you get when you check in. And people always ask me, why do you give a pen and a notebook? And I tell them, that's how I made my career, with a pen and a notebook. I've, a I've asked questions, and I still have these notebooks. And I can refer back to notes. But often when you go to these networking mixers, the first thing you do is you don't have a pen, you don't have a business card. And a lot of this was focused on folks who are trying to break into the industry, who may or may not have 
money. So a lot of people didn't even have business cards. So we tell them like this network is the begin the 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 notebook is the beginning of your network and your network is your net worth, right? And that's how I start the event. Um, it's an hour and twenty minute cocktail, so you just mingle, and I and I feed you really well. We bring you in a room and then you eat again. Uh, we have some inf- we we don't infuse any of the food. Uh, our company Blackmar Farms and Urban Couture. We have our own brand of salad dressings and dipping sauces that we we provide. We just want people to consume responsibly. Uh, we are also one of the first events to, that would allow you to consume on premise legally in the state of New York while you're you know at our event. So people would step outside, consume, come back inside. We sit down, we eat. Um, we honor. I pick three individuals every year that I feel that are out there doing doing the work in this industry, not just talking the talk. Um, and I always look for folks that aren't getting their flowers, Montel. You know, like um, that's honestly how we got together here because I've watched the work that you've done. I've been watching you on TV since way back when. I won't age myself, but, you know, just, you know, in, being introduced to you and your brand in this, this podcast, I, I said, you know, we should talk to Montel. Um, this year we're, we're honoring three individuals that are just amazing. Brendan Robinson out of New Jersey, Roz McCarthy from, um, the, uh, minorities for medical marijuana. Roz and I came in this industry together. We were the two only black people at a lot of these conferences at the executive level. And they'd always stick us in these back hallways, Montel, I swear to you. I've been been doing this since the year 2000. So I know Uh exactly what you're talking about. I've been doing this for 22 years. And it wasn't until 2017 that we actually started having light shine on us. But go right ahead. So so, uh, Roz McCarthy is, um, I'm honoring Roz this year with a Lifetime Achievement Award. That's great. because Because of what she's done. And then Antoine Mordekin out of um, out of Alabama. Um, Antoine owns uh, Black Native Cultivation. His story is amazing. In the state of Alabama, he applied for the license. He had one of the highest scores, and they still denied him a license. Right? We know why. Um, his house mysteriously burnt down, um, and then they raided his farm a week and a half after he lost everything in his house. And he wasn't even growing cannabis. He just grew plants and, and, and vegetables. Antoine has been a mentee of mine for about 18 months. And I I was conflicted because I didn't want people to think, oh, well, he's just awarding, you know, his mentee. But when I put it out to the committee, the past winners, and they all heard his story, they said, we got to bring him in and honor him. So we're honoring him uh, this weekend. Uh, we do this annual event. This is the third one. Uh, next year, it's going to be a little bit different because it's just going to be an awards dinner. We're not going to do the networking part of it because I think that the networking side of it, people have that down now, right? There's enough events where people can go to and and network. You can still come and mingle, but I really want to focus on giving out awards and we're going to expand it to five awards. Um, we do an award in... Um, education and science, um, social justice and social and economic justice, and then the lifetime achievement. Next year, we're going to add it to multimedia and influence. So, you know, and, and people are excited when they get these awards because, again, it's not often that we, we're, 
we're we're given our flowers in this industry, especially the people who roll up their sleeves and do the work. Sure. Now, what are your thoughts on how, you know, other legacy operators like yourself should be given opportunities to enter the legal space? Because, you know, we are still fighting the idea, the fact that you by yourself alone, that me, you know, African-Americans represent, I think it's less than 4% of the leadership in this industry. What do you think about, you know, uh, opening the doors a little bit more and what this industry really needs to do in opening the doors. You know, Montella, thank you for that question. That's um, that's my platform. And I always said, like, when I came into this, I want to be the Jackie Robinson. But really, I don't want to be the Jackie Robinson. I want to be the Satchel Page. right? I want to be the guy that made the way for Jackie Robinson. But, you know, the truth of the matter is we need more education. Um, I think that the people who who close the door on folks that look like us don't understand that we run robust enterprises and businesses um, in the legacy market, right? So if we were able to bring that knowledge and our expertise, that's and that's what makes Blackmar so successful is we have that knowledge and we can bring it into the industry. Um, look, we come with customers, we come with uh, SOPs, we come with protocol. Um, so we're able to transition if we're given the chance. And I think that the stigma still exists around the plant. And, you know, I, I have a t-shirt that we just launched and it says there's no SOP for culture. I think that if, if, if the industry really learned to embrace the cultural side of this, it'd be a no brainer to have uh, folks that look like you and me and, and other legacy operators come in and bring their expertise to help grow this industry. I mean, look, alcohol couldn't be what it is without the bootleggers, right? I mean, it just wouldn't, it would never have been what it is today. But when you take a look at the alcohol industry in America, I think it looks pretty much like almost the same footprint as the cannabis industry. It is, you know, the, the number of, of African-Americans who own brands and own distribution networks for alcohol is probably no greater than what's happened in this community. Um, yeah. and, and where alcohol, different, different alcohol wasn't built on the backs of African-Americans, but cannabis in so many ways was built on the back of brown and black people. And yeah, must be excluded is, is tantamount to literally, honestly, having an industry that literally is as full of shit as it has been in the last five or six years. Man, Montel, thank you for. <laughs> I love how you said that. Now you just opened the door for me to really say what it is, right? Um, ultimately, what we see and what we're experiencing is um, just the exact thing that is the black eye of America, which is systemic racism. Um, if we, it, it it all starts with socioeconomics, right? And when you really take a step back and look at this, this industry was built on the backs and 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 on the, at the liberty and the cost of black men, right? Not just anybody, no, specifically black men. I mean, I, I just don't, no question. We can look at right now is the number of arrests since 1937 for cannabis in America. I think probably 70% of all those arrested for cannabis have been African-American. So it's clear. And that right. didn't just help build this industry, that helped build the, uh, the industry of incarceration. I mean, you know, I, I, I've looked at, at, Cannabis is nothing more than a re-enslavement re tool because uh, they utilize this to fill the prisons that were commercial prisons across this country. 
And yet, you know, uh, when conversations of equity uh, come about, uh, you know, most people kind of put their head down. Well, yeah, well, our company really supports equity. Yeah, well, let's see how many people you have working in your company of color. Well, truthfully, you end up finding out that less than 1% of them or 4% of them are people of color. So, you know, I mean, do you think and anticipate that at some point in time, well, first off, we just heard, you know, the recommendations, I guess, from DOJ to declassify, or no, not declassify, but to reclassify cannabis. I want to know your views on that, whether or not it should be reclassified or declassified. Right. And number two, um, you know, some of the pushback on declassifying is is the fact that, you know, a lot of municipalities use this as a way to fill the ranks of their prisons. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, the my, my thought on reclassify, declassify is, is or deschedule, reschedule is is the same as I had when we were talking about um, legalization of, of the plant in the very beginning days when we started talking about legalization and social equity, right? You touched on two points. I think social equity has become one of the most overused terms in our industry. Like, term. Right. Yeah. And and when and when you look at it, when you talk about the prison industrial complex, we know what it is. You you mentioned it. Eighty percent of all drug arrests were were for possession, not even sales, in possession of the plant. Sixty percent of those in New York State were UPMs, unlawful possession of marijuana. Right. So again, if you were really want to talk about the gateway drug, yeah, sure, cannabis was a gateway drug to your prison. Yeah, prison <laughs> industrial system. But but when when we talk about the reschedule, deschedule, um, it it's like um, does the United States want to have a truth and reconciliation moment, Montel? No, no they don't. No, because that's why they keep talking about reschedule. If they deschedule, they'd have to have a truth and reconciliation. They'd have to admit that 80% of their jails, these federal penitentiaries that are filled with folks with cannabis convictions, they got to go home. You're losing, <laughs> you're losing industry now, right? You're touching on things that, that really shine a, a black eye, no pun intended, on, on this great country that you fought for, right? That my grandfathers and uncles fought for. Um, but at the end of the day, they don't want to have a truth and reconciliation moment. So we can keep playing the game with reschedule, deschedule, but until they deschedule cannabis and they admit that they, that the propaganda machine was wrong, <laughs> they admit to the things that they did to the black and Brown community under the guise of, of, of war on drugs. Then, <clears throat> then we can't have the conversation, but rescheduling it does nothing more than push the buck further down the road and puts us in a position where we're still fighting for safe banking. That's another thing that I've, I've publicly <laughs> fought for. I've testified um, in both Congress and, and in Senate in New York state and assembly. And, you know, until they can prove to me that a banker is going to go to jail for banking cannabis money, then it's all BS. Right. right. And, and, and not <laughs> once has a banker ever gone to jail, by the way, where does the state of New York bank our tax ca cannabis tax money? They bank it with the bank of America, M and T bank and, and key bank. Right. They so, will do that, but they won't allow you to do that. Right. Because we're too risky. Right. And this is my testimony um, on Capitol Hill. I said, I said, we will, we will entertain taking 
cryptocurrency before you entertain cannabis currency. And cryptocurrency is created by a kid who's 15 years old in between playing um, first person shooter games and watching Pornhub. Right. Like at the end of the day, that's the you put you rank our industry below that mentality. And and, you know, when I said that Crystal People Stokes kind of sat up, uh, a lot of them did. And, and they started asking me real questions. And I said, look, the banking industry has also become predatory because you and I both know as as black businessmen, it's real hard for us to bank. It is super hard for us to bank. Now add the level of cannabis on top of it. I can't even tell you the number of times that I've been, um, um, you know, SAR'd and AML'd um, for, for, for simple transactions, right? But again, here it all boils down to this, Montel. An educated consumer makes for a sophisticated market, right? So the lack of education and the lack of time that we have to educate these folks. And, you know, I've said this in, in, to Cory Booker's team, you know, if you're going to go up there and fight for safe, safe banking, understand what this industry is going through. Understand, understand who is being harmed in this harm reduction game, right? Again, when the harm reduction becomes the harm, what are we doing? We're just pushing the buck down the road. And that's what they're doing with reschedule, deschedule. It's the same mentality. You know, it's give us a little bit, get people excited. You know, and I heard somebody say today, they were all excited. Oh, safe banking is going to get re-envisioned. It's not going to get re-envisioned until they get real about the reconciliation with the people and all of the people, not just black and brown people. It's, it's all the people. Well, you know, I mean, but I mean, uh, part of this goes back to what something you said earlier, education, education of the masses, number one, because, you know, I think that's one of the biggest disservices this industry has done is that though we spent all this time doing a lot of B2B work, trying to do B2B work, but we failed miserably in B2C. We don't spend as much time educating the consumer the way they should be educated so that the consumer can demand access to the product. I mean, you take a look at what the, the uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry does. They educate you every day. You turn on your television right this second, and within the next 10 minutes, you're going to see five ads for five different medicines. Don't even know what they do, but you'll remember yeah. some of the names because you see the ad over and over and over again. And why do they do that? So that when you walk into your doctor's office, you'll say to your doctor, have you ever heard of this drug, such and such and such and such? Oh, yeah, wait, I got some samples right here. I'll give you a sample. Why? Because homeboy came by and gave him a couple samples to give him so he'd get a kickback when he makes sure that you ask for it, a prescription for it. Right. Well, why are we not educating the public so that the public is demanding more access to cannabis? Cannabis has, has, has spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to go public, trying to figure out how to get more investment from a B standpoint but we're failing to really pay attention to the C aspect, which is the consumer. And, you know, it, it, you, I think one of the things you said earlier, you know, about, you know, going after first you were developing phenotypes and, and, and you know, types of cannabis that were in the high THC range. Yeah, I think that we recognize this year alone that the majority, the biggest consumer audience that we have out there right now, the audience that we should be going after is baby boomers. But Talk we can about do that. It. And no baby boomers wants to have a 35% THC. No, they, they have difficulty walking to begin with. I don't want to give, you know, my grandmother or you don't want to give your grandmother some, you know, 32, 33% THC product. 
You know, when she gets up out of the chair, she'll fall down, break a hip. Calm down. Let's get those numbers back down to reality. Let's start doing what we should have been doing, and that's doing more formulations of combinations of THC, CBD, more uh, uh, investigative work and research on, you know, what are the viable, you know, terpenes that we've had research on terpenes for 40 years, not just cannabis for terpenes, but terpenes exist in any plant that has a color. Right. So we it's, don't even do that. I'm so, it's so rewarding to have this conversation. This morning I was laying in bed and I, I literally was thinking like, and, and I have it on my Google search. Like I was looking at, I need to look at more than just uh, limoline, right? As a terpene. And I need to start really understanding the terpenes because- Humanine. People don't even understand that we have not even identified all of the terpenes that are existing in cannabis. And so how, you know, how can we dare, I, like right now, I know you have a, a CBD line out across the country. And of course, if people want to have some information and get some stats, where would they go to have access to your CBD line? So uh, right now we took we took it offline. It's coming back online. It's Phoenix Nutraceutical. It's PhoenixCBD.com. Um, it'll be back up here in the next couple weeks. Um, we just had to do some rebranding and retooling. Um, a lot of what you're saying is is right. We've also pared down. Our brand got a little confusing for folks with 101 different SKUs. We're really focusing on health SKUs right now. Um, I, I don't. I, I'm not giving up on the cosmetic line, but we're really focusing on the things we're coming into some unprecedented times, right? And let's not even, we could talk politically, but the world is going to be on edge again. We're going to be on edge, right? So I'll, world, you're right. Wait, the world is on edge. And a lot of the world has recognized, I think in the last year alone, way over a hundred different countries have pulled out of the UN ban uh, of uh, distribution and uh, of hemp. Uh, internationally. So, yeah. I mean, you know, the United States is lagging far behind in this. We are literally, you know, uh, uh, dragging along behind the pig, uh, trying to figure out how we can get more access where countries like Isle of Man, Spain, Germany, South Africa, uh, a couple other African nations, uh, Lesotho, South uh, uh, Brazil, uh, Chile, Ecuador, you know, countries all over the world have recognized the fact that Israel, that you know, cannabis could serve as a geriatric drug, and and several countries are actually utilizing it that way because of the high cost of pharmaceuticals. They know that some people who have trained over to, or, or or switched over to using cannabis can actually bring down the number of pharmaceuticals that they actually purchase. So, we, yeah, go ahead. we we had we consult. I, I'm actually consulting right now uh, for Zimbabwe. For, for the government in Zimbabwe. It started out as a parliament leader uh, contacted me. Um, after, you know, after them recognizing that there is a couple things that I talk about that this industry affords them. And I'm not just talking about THC. I'm talking about the total viability of the plant, CBD and, 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 and cannabis, right? And one of the things, hemp and cannabis, one of the things that um, a lot of people don't even realize um, they realize it globally, but here in the United States, we're so focused on some of the wrong things, right? And one of the biggest things is hemp production can can decrease can can decrease your um, your uh, vulnerabilities to carbon credit exposure, right? Which is a big deal right now. Um, one of the things that hemp does is 
if, if you utilize a hemp program in the right way, you can increase your GDP by one and a half times in the first year. I mean, but my brother, if we were to just stop and have a serious, realistic conversation about hemp in America, every single municipality building's roof should have hemp on it. Why? Because hemp sequesters more CO2 than almost any other plant on the planet. We could be growing hemp in all of the, the, the public spaces um, that, you know, uh, on the sides of um, the, the same way they used to do in the Northeast have, you know, vines growing on the sides of buildings. We could have hemp growing on the sides of buildings and sequester more CO2 than any other plant that we have available. Not only that, we can then take that plant after we trim it down and cut it down. We can use all the bio waste for everything from print, from, from hemp wood to hemp crete. Uh, they're using hemp. There's over 2,500 different uses for the plant that could actually take us back to a time when the world actually, you know, was pretty much focused on hemp. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, hemp is what made the world go round in the 16, 17, 1800s. This was the number one product that we grew in the United States. All of our forefathers grew it. All of our uniforms that were made for the Revolutionary War were made for, were made out of hemp. The only thing that the North and South had in common during the, um, uh, Civil War was the fact that they all wore hemp uniforms. Uh, right. All the canvas that we use for sails, for ropes, for uh, uh, wagons going west, all were made from hemp. It's so ignorant and so stupid that we decided to let racism drive economy rather than looking at it the way it should have. So, yeah, thank you, Montel. The, the Hearst, I always tell people the Hearst family had had their finger on the pulse of, of creating this war on drugs because their newspaper production around, around, the, around the country and then globally really impacted us, right? Their because furniture production. A lot of people don't know. Had they, the, the Hearst family was chopping down trees for furniture, for wagons, for wood back then. They're the reason, and you know, most people don't understand that Anslinger, who was the proponent of you know, the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, was funded by Hearst and DuPont. Why? Because when you go back before 1937, 1910, 1920, lots of lanterns, lots of hemp oil was used. As a matter of fact, the first car that uh, Henry Ford made could have run off of hemp oil. Yeah. People don't know that. They thought it was off of, off of gasoline. No, it could have run off of hemp oil. He made an entire car out of hemp, which is yeah. really kind of crazy that we won't acknowledge that even today the stupidity involved, but there's a reason why. And that reason why it became the re-enslavement tool. When the chains came off from you know, the plantations, they put the chains back on when they went into prisons and they needed to have something to make sure that they could get us in. And you know, there's even literature that has been written about the fact that you know, if you go back in the early 17, 1800s, how the hell do you think you had a big strapping black man like you go out in the field and pick cotton all day and get beat upside your head and not protest? Right. They were giving you hemp. They right. were giving you hemp product, keeping you a little bit high. I mean, people don't get it. So uh, I'm with you. I'm sorry. I'll, I got to get off my horse here for a second. Now, listen, listen, preach, man, because again, you said it, education, right? Th this conversation is probably one of the best interviews that I've done because we got into the education and you can get into the weeds of the industry. Having this conversation and and really having the conversation from, from an educated standpoint changes the dialogue, changes the narrative, right? And 
we, it all goes back to what we all know, right? The racism in America. But at the end of the day, the reason why we don't educate consumers is because educated consumers would mean the lawmakers have to, the lawmakers can't pretend to be ignorant anymore, right? So, and I always say that, you've heard me say this and I'll say it again, educated consumers make for a sophisticated market. I didn't say educated businesses, educated consumers. Just take a look at Apple. Take a look at Apple. Apple has us so conditioned, you either have an iPhone or an Android, right? That's it. That's all you have. And if you have an iPhone, you can tell me everything that that iPhone could potentially do. Why? Because it's in the commercials. Why? Because they tell us what it can do. Well, imagine what we could do if we told people and we used the same tactic, like you said, and we shared this information and we told people using CBD does this, using THC does this, um, and and really break it down to the educate to to educate the consumer. Nobody would touch can uh, opioids. Nobody would go to to to, to and, and Not only that, not only that, but if we start to expand the fact that there is knowledge already out there about all the other minor cannabinoids from you know CBG to CBN to you know uh, uh, CBC. There's so many different, and then there's the acid version of every single one of them. So right. you know we really are doing a just an uh, I think a, an injustice and a disservice to the industry by not, you know, ensuring that some of our revenue, I mean, it, that we get goes to education. And you're gonna, some people are going to say, well, but you're not allowed to advertise. I'm not talking about educate. Look, a rising tide will lift all boats. There is enough money in this. And we haven't even scratched the surface when it comes to hemp yet. We haven't right. even scratched the surface when it comes to cannabis. I mean, you know, uh, we're like the Wright brothers pushing that wooden hand playing down a hill. They haven't looked at jets yet. We got 10 years from now, hemp is going to be probably one of the biggest, you know, uh, uh, export import crops in the world again, as it should be. But it's going to take us 10, 12 years to get there because we need to have a generation of of assholes drop out of the way and get out of the way and allow this business to reflourish again. And that's kind of that's kind of my my focus and my shift. Right. I've I've become a carbon sequestration uh, consultant. Uh, we built, uh, we have a store right here in the village of Saugerties, New York. We were one of the first in New York state to have hemp fiber siding. Um, our store has hemp fiber siding. Um, the owner of the building is a very good friend of mine and allowed me to do that. Um, we didn't even use the heat in that building in the dead of winter because it was our value 24 right off, right, right off the press. Right. So understanding this, we did research with hemp as biofuel, um, I self-funded uh, a, a small research. We were going to try and power a Tryon supercar in Vegas with hemp. We just couldn't get the octane where it needed to be. I just shifted and I just had a conversation with a bunch of folks and said, hey, look, in Africa, we should be looking to to create uh, hemp as a biofuel to utilize all this farm equipment that we're talking about bringing over there to do biodynamic farming. How about how about we feed the the continent with hemp seed protein? We know that hemp seeds are one of the highest laden protein plants on the planet. Just like a chia seed or any of the other superfoods, hemp is a superfood. Why not start feeding that continent that has so much issues with, you know, making sure that their people have enough to eat? We could do that and you could do that cheaply, but we don't that's that's again there are a lot of ulterior motives for a lot of things that happen in this world and that 
is one that that I don't think people want to let the, the cat out of bed. Again, if people want to get more information about your company, Blackmar, or what you're doing, where would they go? They can go to uh, blackmarfarms.com, B-L-A-K-M-A-R, farms, F-A-R-M-S.com. They can follow me on social media, um, at RunFast on Twitter, and Ruben J. Lindo on Facebook, and Ruben Lindo and Blackmar Farms on so all, all social media platforms. Cool. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to run out of time real quick. So I want to know what's next for you. What you got? What do you got planned? So we have the event this weekend, and then uh, we're gearing up for a November launch of our new products in Michigan. Uh, so look for us in Michigan. We have about 20 outlets in Michigan from Ann Arbor all the way to Detroit. Um, and then uh, beginning of the year next year, we're looking to be in 15 states with our product in medical and in recreational dispensaries. Super. Well, we will be looking for it. Um, I'm in two states right now, so I'll, I'll look every place that we cross paths. Thank you, Montel. It was a pleasure, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Um, you were one of my mom's favorite on TV. Oh, so. I appreciate that, my friend. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for thank you for having us, and uh, I look forward. To, look, the invitation's always there. Anytime I have an event, please, if if you can make it, I'd love to have you. Um, yeah, that's why I can't make this weekend. I'm I'm actually filming one of my shows in uh, uh, Dallas, outside of the Dallas area. I do a show that's called Military Makeover, where we actually uh, make over the homes of deserving veterans. And you know, I'm going to be in Dallas this weekend. Uh, as we finish up the, the, the makeover of a home of a very deserving veteran who was wounded, got blown up in a IED, or no, sorry, a rocket propelled grenade that hit his, uh, his um, military transport vehicle and severely injured him. But he has literally showed the tenacity and the voraciousness of that soul and uh, has really bounced back well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to being this weekend. But, you know, uh, keep inviting me and uh, let's, let's see if we can connect somewhere. Appreciate you. Thank you, Montel. And thank you for your service too, by the way. Absolutely, my friend. And thank you for what you do. And thank you all for tuning in and making sure you stay tuned with Just Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.